Right, good morning, everyone. Good morning, good morning. Uh, I'm excited to be celebrating Christmas with you. Uh, Emmanuel Kids, it's time for you guys to uh, go follow your leaders to your own uh, classes. For everyone else, uh, please turn to Isaiah 59. Isaiah 59. Uh, so this week we're starting our Advent uh, Christmas series. And, and the theme for this year, if we can get, up, get it up on screen, is, is waiting, waiting for hope that's come. Waiting for hope that's come. Uh, the birth of Jesus was the, was the birth of, of hope to the world. And, and like a seed that, that grows into a tree, the hope that Jesus brought at Christmas when he was born was meant to grow bigger and bigger and bigger. And, and this hope is, is so big that it, it's still growing after 2,000 years. There's so much to this hope that we have yet to see. It's not fully grown yet. But even as we wait for this hope to be fully grown, you know, we're able to enjoy the hope that's already come. You know, we're waiting for this hope that's come. And, and there's so many aspects of, of this hope that Jesus brings. And, and this year, we're going to look at some of the aspects of this hope from the book of Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah contains many prophecies about Jesus, uh, some that have been fulfilled and, and, and others that are Yet, yet to be fulfilled. And we're going to be looking into maybe some of the you know, more obscure passages in Isaiah. Some, we know they're, they're very well-known ones that we you know, say all the time during Christmas. We're going to look at some of those. We're also going to look at some less-known ones because they all form a beautiful picture of, of who Jesus is. Uh, but before we get into reading uh, the scriptures together, let, let me give you a brief background on Isaiah so we can understand uh, where these passages are coming from. And, and, and the context about them. So, so Isaiah was written around uh, 740 uh, BC. So that, you know, there's King David, there's probably like five to six kings after David, and then now we're at, uh, we're at in Isaiah's time. And uh, the Israelites in Isaiah's time uh, had very few reasons to hope. They had become a weak nation. Uh, they, they were facing the threat of being attacked and, and subjugated by foreign powers. And in this situation, where there are you know, enemies on all sides of them, they, they were tempted to put their trust and hope for protection in other nations, uh, nations like Egypt. And it's here that God, through the prophet Isaiah, speaks to his people. He tells them, don't put your hope in, in people for safety and security, but put your trust in me as your king. And this is where uh, some of the more well-known verses about trusting and waiting and hoping in God uh, come in. You know, like, you know, those who wait for the Lord will renew their strength in Isaiah 40. Or in, in, in Isaiah 30, in repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. So God wants his people to trust in him for safety and security. At the same time, uh, God also confronts the Israelites about their lack of trust in God. And their lack of trust was seen in the different ways they were uh, compromising their obedience, compromising their worship. They, they were doing some things, but not really wholeheartedly and not really fully because they didn't actually trust God. And the last thing that God does in Isaiah is, is reveal his plan to rescue the Israelites. Um, and, and this plan was to establish an eternal kingdom through them, ruled by a Messiah. 
And it's here that these many prophecies about Jesus are written. And, and, and the ultimate question, challenge that, that God has for us as we read uh, Isaiah is, is what and who will we ultimately put our hope in? What and who will we ultimately put our hope in? You know, will, will we hope in God? Will we wait for him? Or will we turn to something else? You know, all other hopes fail us, uh, like grass that fades away. You know, all flesh is like grass. It quickly fades away. Any other hope that we place in anything else other than God is going to fade away because all other hopes are just based on people and we are finite. We will perish. And that's what the book of Isaiah is about. And these different passages that we're going to be looking at in the next uh, coming weeks uh, give us a bit more detail on what it means to hope in God and to trust in God. So with that, let, let, let's get into God's word. Let's read it. Uh, let's read it. Isaiah 59, uh, verses 1 uh, to 21. Just follow along as I read. Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. For your hands are stained with blood, your fingers with guilt, your lips have spoken falsely, and your tongue muttered wicked things. No one calls for justice, no one pleads a case with integrity. They rely on empty arguments, they utter lies, they conceive trouble and give birth to evil. They hatch the eggs of vipers and spin a spider's web. Whoever eats their eggs will die, and when one is broken, an adder is hatched. Their cobwebs are useless for clothing. They cannot cover themselves with what they make. Their deeds are evil deeds, and acts of violence are in their hands. Their feet rush into sin. They are swift to shed innocent blood. They pursue evil schemes. Acts of violence mark their ways. The way of peace they do not know. There is no justice in their paths. They have turned them into crooked roads. No one who walks them will know peace. So justice is far from us, and righteousness does not reach us. We look for light, but all is darkness, for brightness, but we walk in deep shadows. Like the blind, we grope along the wall, feeling our way like people without eyes. At midday, we stumble as if it were twilight. Among the strong, we are like the dead. We all growl like bears. We moan mournfully like doves. We look for justice, but find none. For deliverance, but it is far away. For our offenses are many in your sight, and our sins testify against us. Our offenses are ever with us, and we acknowledge our iniquities. Rebellion and treachery against the Lord, turning our backs on our God, inciting revolt and oppression, uttering lies our hearts have conceived. So justice is driven back, and righteousness stands at a distance. Truth has stumbled in the streets. Honesty cannot enter. Truth is nowhere to be found. And whoever shuns evil becomes a prey. The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm achieved salvation for him. And his own righteousness sustained him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as in a cloak. 
according to what they have done, so he will repay. Wrath to his enemies and retribution to his foes. He will repay the islands their due. From the west, people will fear the name of the Lord. And from the rising sun, they will revere his glory. For he will come like a pent-up flood that the breath of the Lord drives along. The Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who repent of their sins, declares the Lord. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit who is on you will not depart from you. And my words that I have put in your mouth will always be on your lips, on the lips of your children and on the lips of their descendants from this time on and forever, says the Lord. So, so a, common pass, a common question that people ask God is this, right? a common question. If God is really good and really powerful, why isn't he doing something about all of the horrible things in the world? If God is really good and, and truly all-powerful, why isn't he doing something about all of the horrible things in the world? And perhaps this is a question that you've been asking God yourself. You, know, you take a look at the news, you see all the sad things going on in the world, and you ask God questions like, are you even seeing what's going on? How come you're not doing something? Do you even want to help? Are you even powerful enough to help? And if that's you, then, then you're not alone, because that's the same question God's people, the Israelites, were asking God in Isaiah's time. This whole chapter that we just read is, is God's response to some of the questions that the Israelites were asking him in the previous chapter. They were asking God questions like, you know, why have we fasted and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled himself and you have not noticed? In other words, they were saying, God, how come you're not helping us even though we are seeking you? How come you haven't done anything about our problems? And God's response to, to all of these questions and questions like it are summed up in the first two verses of our passage. He says, Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. God is saying, I, I do hear and I do see all of the problems going on in the world, and I am able to save. I am working to help and to save you. But, but there's something keeping you from hearing me and experiencing my power. It, it, it's your sin. See, God's not the one that's hiding. The people are hiding themselves from God so that they can't see him. The problem isn't that God's not working to save people. The problem is that people are not allowing God to save them. They are separating themselves from God by their sin. See, the reason why it seemed like God wasn't helping, why it seems like God isn't helping, is because we don't truly understand what our problem is. See, the core problem for the Israelites wasn't that they were in danger of being overtaken by foreign powers. 
Their core problem was their sin and distrust, and distrust in God that kept him from helping them. In this passage, God reveals how big their problem of sin was and his plan to resolve it for them. And you might be wondering, you know, what does this have to do with hope? At Christmas, we, we, we celebrate hope. This doesn't seem very hopeful. Well, 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 let me just share the main point for today. Maybe it'll make it, start to make a bit more sense. All right. Hope comes to those who admit how hopeless they are. Hope comes to those who admit how hopeless they are. See, God is, is good and powerful. He's working to resolve all of humanity's problems. But for us to see the hope of God in our lives, we need to see how big our problem really is. And this is what God is trying to tell us in this, in this long and descriptive passage that we just read. And this passage is divided into three sections. And the first section, from verses 2 to 8, reveals the hopeless situation of sin. You know, sin in each person's life. You know, your hands are defiled with blood, your fingers with iniquity. And this results in sin in society as a whole. You know, no one, no one as a whole calls for justice. No one pleads a case with integrity. The second, the second section of this passage is from verses 9 to 15, and it's a confession of sin, a, a mourning over sin. And, and the problem of sin is no longer a, a they thing or, or a you thing. See, it, it changes from they and you to me to we to us. Sin is my own problem, our problem. It's about us. You know, justice is far from us. Righteousness does not reach us because of our sin. And, and these first two sections are filled with a lot of uh, images and pictures, uh, poetry, uh, to communicate in ways that um, pic only pictures can how hopeless sin has left humanity. Uh, but it doesn't end there. Uh, the last section of this passage from verses 15 to 21, you know, God gives hope to a hopeless situation. You know, God looks at the horrible problem of sin and injustice in the world. He sees that nobody is able to do anything about it, so he intervenes to make the situation right. He brings salvation. And what God does brings hope not only to the Israelites, but for the whole world. Now, this passage was first addressed to the Israelites, but through revealing to the Israelites their problem of sin, God reveals to the rest of the world their problem of sin. Because the Israelites were supposed to be God's representative nation for the world to know God's truth. And they received so many blessings from God. You know, he performed so many miracles on their behalf. He gave them his laws to follow. His, you know, his presence came to dwell with them in the temple. He caused them to become the most prosperous and powerful nation in the world. But after doing all of that for them, the Israelites still sinned against God. And, and by doing all these good things for Israel, God shows the world that humanity's problem of sin is not something that can be fixed by external means. It takes something more. A, a redeemer, a redeemer, a savior needs to come to this world. 
but this Redeemer is only revealed after showing how much we need one. Hope comes to those who admit how hopeless they really are. We're going to go over this passage in more detail. You know, God's word is life and it's spiritual food for believers. And a passage like this is a bit difficult when we're reading it for the first time. Uh, but it's important for us to grow, uh, to really get into these passages of scripture that, that are harder to understand. You know, we need to reflect and digest on each part of it. Um, and to help us understand that the, these three sections can be summarized in, in three points. All right, so the first is, the world's more hopeless than you think. You're more hopeless than you think. But Jesus brings hope greater than you can imagine. So let's think about these three points. Uh, the first one is, the world's more hopeless than you think. When you look at verses 3 to 8, it reveals to us the many levels and layers to the problem of sin. And the key word in this section is, is the word iniquity and, and evil, right? People are stained with iniquity. You know, they give birth to evil. Uh, their, their deeds are evil deeds. You know, they think thoughts of iniquity. Uh, the word iniquity and evil is actually the same word in Hebrew with, with both of those meanings and essentially just means wickedness. The image is like one of something being bent or, or, or crooked. Those who do evil or iniquity, they, they bend what is right and turns them into something wrong. Uh, think, think, of a, think of a garbage dump. Yes, garbage is, is very small. So think of a garbage dump where all of our garbage gets piled on into one location. N not, not a pleasant thought. You know, it, it's smelly. It, it's filled with dirty objects. But, but the most disgusting part of a garbage dump isn't what you can actually see on the outside. It's actually what's going on underneath all of the bags of garbage on the inside, you know, all, all of the rotting, molding parts. See, verses 3 to 8 is a, a, a thorough description of the garbage dump of human evil. It, it shows how every part of humanity, inside and outside, is corrupt. So, so externally, you know, what we do with our hands, down to our fingers, just the smallest things that we do, the, the, the things that we say with our lips, our speech, uh, you know, verse 7, our, our feet, they, they run to carry out evil, they rush into sin. You know, in public courts where there should be justice, most of the time it's actually not justice. It's people manipulating justice for their own ends. But the problem of sin or evil in humanity isn't just external, it's, it's internal. You know, verse 7, the evil that we see comes from our thoughts within. And to help us to understand how, how thoroughly corrupt we are, um, this imagery of, of giving birth is used. Okay. <coughs> you know, Humanity conceives trouble, gives birth to, to evil. You know, the basic purpose of birth is, is to bring forth life, something good. But humanity is, is so corrupt that it doesn't bring forth life. We, we bring forth evil. In this picture of giving birth, that, that's on screen, what people give birth to are, are eggs of poisonous vipers, poisonous snakes, and, and spiders' webs. And those who eat these eggs die. Uh, this is a really gross picture, like, you know, 
snakes in itself are gross and you know snakes hatching and well it's very gross right and, and that, that's the point that's the point right and usually you know vipers snakes spiders are associated with something scary and, and dark and and this picture is meant to convey the spiritual truth that humanity is so corrupt that we've become something like less than human you know, we, we've become like snakes you know, we, we take after satan who took took a form of a snake in the garden of eden Humanity was created to be fruitful and multiply, but it's become the opposite. Instead of being fruitful and giving life, we produce death and harm and, and destruction. I, I get many calls every day. I wish it was from all of you guys, but it's usually scam calls. <laughs> Everyone, you're laughing because you get those calls as well, right? <laughs> You know, one of the growing threats to people today are the number of fake calls and emails. If you type in phone scam in Hong Kong, over this past year, people have been cheated out of tens of millions of, of Hong Kong dollars. You know, have you ever thought about the people behind these scam calls? You know, just think about it. There are actually people who have devoted their working life to getting together in fake call centers and finding the best ways to cheat people out of their money. All of their hard work in a day results in people being harmed and, and cheated. And this is just a very apparent example, clear example of the corruption at large in the world. Now, now verses seven to eight, the last part of the section, it ends with the result of sin. You know, humanity is foolishly and purposely plunging itself to destruction, running to pursue evil. We walked on a path where there is no justice, where, where there is no peace, where no one has actually even experienced true peace. What the world calls peace isn't actually what peace truly is. I want you to think, think for a second. How do you view the state of the world today? How do you view the state of the world today? You know, is it mostly a good place where bad things happen occasionally? Is it a pretty bad place, a pretty horrible place, but, but it's gradually getting better? Uh, this guy on the screen, he, he wrote a, a famous song with an answer to this question. Anyone know who he is? John Lennon. I hear about this song. Do you know, do you know what song I'm talking about? Is, is this piano on? It goes something like this. Uh, yeah, you guys know the song, right? All right, I'm, I'm not going to sing, but let me, let, let me read some of the lyrics. All right, let me read some of the lyrics. Imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for and no religion to. Imagine all the people living life in peace. You may say that I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. So if you listen to this song, it has a very beautiful melody, very catchy. That's why you guys all know it. But its understanding of the world is wrong. It is wrong, wrong, wrong. You know, John Lennon, he believed the world was a bad place but he believed that people could make it better if they worked really hard to get rid of politics, get rid of possessions, even get rid of God. 
but God's word tells us the opposite. The world is a far darker, far more hopeless place than you think. Humanity can't fix its own problems. You know, getting rid of politics, getting rid of material inequality won't be able to solve our problem. You know, solving this problem of global warming, that's been on the news so much, uh, disarming nuclear weapons, that's not going to help either. Because the problem destroying humanity is, is sin. You know, sin drives the world along a path of certain destruction. And from the moment that humanity disobeyed God in the Garden of Eden, the things have been going downhill. That, that, that countdown timer, that doomsday timer for humanity's destruction was hit. And there's no way to reverse it. The world is more hopeless than you think. And if we believe and accept what God says to us, a correct understanding of what the world is truly like, should lead to a correct understanding of what we're really like. You're more hopeless than you think. You're more hopeless than you think. If you look at verses 9 to 15, it, it, it's a confession of, of helplessness, of helplessness from those who, who believe God. Uh, in this passage, uh, those who are, are talking here is the prophet Isaiah and, and those uh, of the Israelites who, who remained faithful to God during this time, who, who trusted in God. And, and their response is the response that all of God's people, all believers, are to have. And, and there's a couple of key characteristics that we can learn from. You know, first, instead of blaming God, they take responsibility. You know, verse 9, therefore justice, so justice is far from us. You know, what, why is there no justice? Why is there no righteousness? Well, it's the therefore. It's every, all those horrible things about humanity from before. And, and the understanding of justice here, it's, it's not legal righteousness. It, it's not a right judgment. It, it's referring to the right state of life, the whole state of life under God's rule. You know, people here admit that they're suffering and injustice. It's not God's fault. It's a consequence of our own wrongdoing. Second, they take ownership over their sin. In verse 12, they admit that they've done wrong, that they have wronged or offended God many times. They admit that they're, that they're guilty. You know, if God were to judge them, their sins would testify against them. Nobody actually needs to tell what they've done. It's very clear what they've done. But, but, but more than that, they, they are so deeply aware of their sins. You know, their sins or their offenses are ever with us. You know, it's something that follows them around wherever they go. It's constantly on their minds. They know how much they've done wrong. They can name exactly what they're guilty of. You know, rebellion and treachery against God, turning their backs on God, inciting revolt and, and, and oppression. The third thing they do is, is they recognize their hopeless condition. You know, they're like blind people who, who grope along a wall. They, they can't see light. They can only see darkness. They, they keep stumbling and falling. And the reason they can only see darkness isn't because of anything external. They're actually walking around in midday at, when the sun's the brightest. The reason they can't see is because they actually have no eyes. They, they have an internal problem. There's something dysfunctional about their, their state. You know, they actually understand that their problem 
is their heart. They have a heart that utters lies, that leaves them in darkness. And this understanding of, of, their, of their sin leads to a response. We, we growl like bears, we mourn mournfully like, like doves. Um, it's just this, this idea of just sorrow and sadness over their sin that words can't express. It can only be expressed in like, you know, moans and groans and like animal sounds. That's how sad and grieved these people are. So I want us to reflect for a moment, you know, how much can you relate to the experience in words that we just read in, in 9 to 12? You know, do these words ring true to your heart in any way? You know, when you hear our, our offenses are many in your sight, our sins testify against us, our, our offenses are ever with us, we acknowledge our iniquities, you know, is your response, that's, that's so true? You know, a, a Christian's life is, is one of continual repentance. We, we don't just repent for the things we've done in the past, we repent of who we were as sinners, and we grow in repentance as we realize just how sinful we were. We look at our past life before knowing Christ, and we see more and more how blind and foolish we were, how our, our direction in life really was one of destruction. We thought we were right, but we were so wrong. You know, many times when it comes to faith, uh, you know, our focus uh, tends to be on what, what we can do for God. Um, how can we serve God? And, and that's, right, that's right, that's true. We should serve God. We should do things for God. Um, but, but, first, but the first step of being practical, of doing things for God, is to start not with trying to do things for God. It's to actually confess that you can't do anything for God and to confess any ways that you've been trying to do things to please God on your own. That that's repentance. I can't do anything to please God on my own. I need you, God. I need you, God, to work through me. And, and it's with this heart of repentance that we need. It's only when we have this perspective that we can see the hope that God offers us in Jesus. Hope comes to those who admit how hopeless they are. The world's more hopeless than you think. You're more hopeless than you think. But Jesus brings hope greater than you can imagine. You know, verses 15 to 20 is, is God's response to the hopeless situation of sin. He looks down, he sees all of the corruption in the world. He sees the hopeless condition of sin. And his response is to come down to single-handedly single save humanity. And the reason why God comes down isn't because of who other people are. It's, it's because of who God is. His own righteousness sustains him. God comes to save because God is righteous. He's a God who remains faithful to his promises, even when people are not faithful. And in verse 17, we see God acting like a person. He comes down in this form of a, of a mighty warrior. He puts on armor like a person would. What he puts on isn't material things, it's immaterial things. You know, righteousness, salvation, zeal, vengeance. 
Because the enemy he's come down to defeat is, is first and foremost uh, spiritual. It's sin and evil in, in all of its forms. And we see God coming down to do two things. The first in verse 18 is to execute judgment. God judges fairly. He, he repays people according to what they have done. He, he's getting rid of sin by judging all those who refuse to turn away from it. These are the enemies who experience his wrath. But God's judgment here, it's actually not pictured like a judge sitting at a court. Sometimes you think of like judgment, you know, God's like making a decision. He's up here. He's slamming his hammer. That's actually not the picture of God's judgment here. God's judgment in this, in this passage is like a warrior with a license to kill. Right? A warrior with a license to kill. Uh, there's a book in the Bible called Judges in the Old Testament. And in this book, God would appoint judges. These judges were, were actually warriors who had authority and a command from God to fight against certain groups of people who God had made a judgment about. This is the type of judge in this passage. God is this warrior judge who makes a perfect judgment and executes people on the spot. But this isn't the only thing that God does in this passage. God also sends a redeemer, a redeemer to Zion. And Zion is a term that refers to God's city and God's people, or God's people who live in God's city. Uh, a redeemer comes to God's people, to all who trust in the Lord, and, and a redeemer's task is to, well, redeem. To, to redeem means to set free from the control of something. And here, the Redeemer comes to set God's people free from the control and power of sin. This whole last section is a prophecy about Jesus. Because God doesn't just act like a person. He becomes a person, a person who is armed with righteousness because he was born into the world as sinless and perfect. And Jesus came clothed in zeal. He came to do God's will and to glorify God the Father. Jesus came to be the Redeemer that would save his people from sin. So we, so we read in Matthew one twenty one, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And Jesus came so that God could establish a relationship with people in, in a covenant. One where, through Jesus, the Holy Spirit's presence and word would always be with those whom he redeems. See, God's answer to all the questions that people ask him is Jesus Christ. God, are you there? Yes. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. God, do you care? Yes, I sacrificed Jesus for you. God, are you able to help us? Yes, Jesus came to resolve once and for all the problem behind all problems, the problem of sin. And Jesus' death and resurrection has brought freedom, redemption from sin. Through him, everyone who believes has a relationship with God through the Holy Spirit. His arm is not too short to save. In Jesus, the hope of redemption has already come. But his saving work isn't done yet. See, the hope that Jesus brings is one where sin is completely eradicated, completely removed and defeated in the world. That's the hope we still wait for. 
As believers, we're freed from the power of sin, but we're not freed from its effects. We still live in a world filled with sin and evil, and that's because Jesus has yet to carry out the task of judgment for sin. Only then will the world be completely free. See, during Christmas, uh, we celebrate uh, the hope of the one who was born to redeem the world from sin. But the aspect of Christmas that Christians and the world tends to forget is that Christmas marks the birth of the one who was appointed to judge the world of sin and injustice. The birth of the humble savior in a lowly manger was the birth of a fierce warrior destined to destroy all sin and evil. And this is good news. You know, just, just imagine living in a world where there is absolutely no evil, where there are no scam calls, where there are no corrupt politicians, where there is no racism or social inequality, where everyone truly lives in peace. That's what Jesus' saving work is going to bring about by destroying sin. But here's the thing. Hope comes to those who admit how hopeless they are. We need to receive this hope. See, for believers, judgment is an amazing thing. It's actually salvation. It's actually being free from sin, living in a world of peace. But for those who do not give up their sin, judgment is a fearful thing. Those who God redeems are those who repent of their sins. So, so as we begin our begin our our Christmas season, the first thing we actually need to do is, is to repent and to continue to repent and to practice repentance because only then will we see how amazing the hope of, of Jesus is. Whether this is your first time repenting or your second time or your hundredth time, let's continue to repent and let God show us how amazing the hope we have is through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are so awesome. You are a mighty warrior, and, and you came to free us from our sins. Lord, we worship you because you are worthy. You are all-powerful. You're, you're amazing. Thank you for redeeming us. Thank you that your work isn't done yet. Lord, we live in a world that's just full of so many horrible things, and, and it causes us so much distress each day. Um, we, we feel its effects in our workplace, and our families, God. And we long for the day when we'll be free, Lord, when we can live in true peace. Lord, we, we long for that day and we wait for it and we know that it's come. We celebrate that it's already come because you came to redeem us when you were born. We continue to praise you in your name. Amen. <laughs>